0: Good morning, Hillview Community Church. Uh, What a joy to get to be with you this morning from uh, here in South Africa. Uh, It's a strange time in history. Uh, Looking at a screen, uh, you're watching sermons recorded in bedrooms, but uh, here we are. And uh, I am so grateful that Scott invited me to share with you this morning and uh, just as we begin, I just want to take a moment to share uh, Rachel and my uh, deep gratitude for your community there in Hillview. Uh, we've been missionaries supported by this community for many years. And uh, quite a lot of you have uh, traveled to be with us when we've run Isitembiso camps for uh, the children and young people of Masapu Maleli. And uh, so many more of you have prayed for us faithfully, uh, supported those that have come, uh, given financially to the work we do here, Uh, And we are are just so grateful and I hope uh, you feel like uh, what can feel like maybe uh, the day in, day in being a part of a church community in one place. Uh, I hope you can actually feel even in this season of being scattered uh, and uh, in this unusual time of COVID-19 that your community there in Hillview actually has a huge impact uh, I'm sure both there in the northeast of Scotland, uh, but also 6,000 plus miles away here in South Africa. And I hope you, uh, you feel a part of that in some way. So uh, 12 plus years ago now, Rachel and I were working in Aberdeen, and uh, we were sensing that God was calling us to play uh, just a small part in his desire to see all nations worship God in another nation. And through uh, beginning that journey, we had uh, just incredible mentors, uh, particularly Floyd and uh, Sally McClung, who have been our leaders here in South Africa. Uh, Floyd very recently went to be with the Lord, but his influence and words to us remain alive uh, by the Spirit of God within us. And uh, Floyd mentored us and, and convinced us that the whole arc of the Bible, the whole point of the story of God, And the trajectory of history is God's deep desire to gather a people for his name. And so practically, what does that look like? Well, uh, it looks like discipling people uh, to recognize and participate even in God's presence among them and within them in faith. Uh, And that this idea, uh, this journey of learning to live as people following the ways of Jesus uh, with his presence among us, Uh, is actually the point I think we're meant to see in this reading from John's Gospel. So I want us to consider uh, three things uh, during this time together. Three seems like the uh, kind of natural sign of a uh, a sermon construction. And uh, so those uh, headings, those kind of three parts, uh, just so you've got a way of tracing our way through here together, uh, come under the headings of sign, uh, of temple, and of presence. Presence. So in the last few years I've actually kind of hung around John's gospel and I think uh, in this season it's actually uh, a bit of a favourite of mine as I've spent time in it and And here's part of the reason for that. Uh, John, the writer of this gospel, uh, was a disciple maker all of his life. Um, in contrast to the other disciples and the other gospel writers who were martyred actually quite early on in the church's history, uh, he, in contrast, Uh, pastored churches right into his old age and so uh, he was leading churches who very likely had some of the other Gospels uh, present with them in their worshipping life you know Matthew Mark and Luke and so when he uh, likely uh, towards the end of his life this life that had been pastoring people he comes to write uh, his account and so he's writing in a different way to the other Gospel writers He's not attempting uh, in the way that Luke begins his gospel, you know, to write an orderly account because those accounts already exist in the life of the church. So he's writing this gospel account uh, with those other gospels in mind uh, after we can imagine, you know, a lifetime of making disciples and all the uh, difficulty and challenges that come up in that. And he's, uh, we can imagine thinking, what people still, what might people still uh, need to know in order to live a life that fruitfully follows the ways of Jesus? So this is a gospel of a lifelong disciple maker. And there are many things that are mentioned in John's gospel that aren't mentioned in the other gospels. And there are, there are things like this passage in John's gospel that are seemingly out of order when we compare them uh, to some of the other gospels. And so, uh, as I've said already, John is not so much trying to offer uh, an orderly account. Uh, He's actually uh, writing and kind of composing his gospel uh, to encourage us not just to know things about Jesus, uh, but to actually come to, uh, in faith, know Jesus himself. To enter into this personal relationship uh, in the context of a community of disciples. And so that's uh, John's uh, emphasis Is he's writing this gospel in a slightly uh, different way than the others. So let's begin with uh, signs. As you've uh, already been introduced to uh, last week, there are so-called uh, seven signs in the gospel of John. And biblical scholars have had uh, some argument over time about what these seven signs actually are. Which of the signs or which of the actions of Jesus is actually considered one of these seven signs? And so this sign, uh, the second sign in, the, in this series of sermons that you're uh, engaging in, is sometimes passed over. And for a moment, uh, I think we need to reflect on the very nature of signs. Uh, and it might help us consider why this passage uh, might help us understand why it can be considered a sign. So John, uh, in telling this story uh, of Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, does something we might be tempted to think of as as not miraculous in one way at all. And so we need to ask the question, in what way is this a sign? So in contrast, uh, rather than doing something uh, very supernatural, it seems like Jesus here is doing something quite embarrassingly human. Uh, He's getting angry. And I wonder this morning how you feel about getting angry. Uh, and is there a space in your picture of Jesus for him getting angry? And I, I know it's not a very uh, British or middle class appropriate thing to do. And so we can kind of be tempted to brush over this as something slightly awkward here in the Gospel accounts about Jesus. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Mark Galley, who uh, was a journalist for Christianity Today, he wrote a book called Jesus Mean and Wild. And that title, uh, apart from being a good marketing ploy maybe, uh, also confronts us with a question about Jesus. How we become used to a Jesus who's who's simply meek and mild. And well, John chapter 2 won't let us away with a domesticated Jesus here, uh, Jesus gets angry. He is confrontational in a way that might make us feel very uncomfortable. So the question we need to ask ourselves here is, what makes Jesus angry? And because uh, as Christians we affirm that Jesus is God, uh, we can ask maybe a deeper question. What does God get angry about? So let's consider Jesus' anger here for a moment. Uh, A very well-experienced Christian counsellor who I know uh, once described anger like this to me. He said, it's the protest of grief. So every time anger erupts, uh, a good question to ask, as it were, to get behind the anger, is to ask, what's been lost? What is this grief over? And and I think here this is a key to seeing why Jesus does what he does. Uh, A question we can ask is, what is Jesus grieving what has been lost uh, here in the temple that has made him act in this way? And we're going to get to that. But for now, I just want us to pay, uh, keep paying attention to the question about uh, what is a sign because sometimes, and I think this is especially true maybe of our modern Western context, uh, we can uh, become enamored sometimes with miracles. Something that is you know, unquestionably supernatural in breaking into what we feel is otherwise a very mundane and ordinary human life. Uh, and I love that stuff. We, we pray for the sick. We've seen people healed here in South Africa. We've uh, cast out uh, demonic forces that are acting on, on people. But sometimes uh, we can miss the wood for the trees if all we're after is something spectacular and, and seemingly kind of magical to happen. John uses an important word, sign, here. And we need to remember what is a sign for? Uh, A sign points. It directs our attention. And uh, if I remember rightly, at the bottom of the hill, uh, of the street that leads to Hillview Community Church, the building there, uh, there's a sign. And it points people in the direction of something else. By its nature, a sign is not the thing itself. If someone is wanting to come uh, to a Hillview service and stops at the sign at the bottom of the street and wonders when the service will begin, uh, they're going to be disappointed. And so uh, as we think of signs in the Gospel of John, uh, we don't want to somehow become over enamored with the sign itself. Uh, We want to become enamored and understand who the sign points to. And of course, that is in the Gospels, uh, the person of Jesus. So the writer in Colossians in in chapter 117 reminds us that the reality is that Jesus Christ is before all things. uh, And the writer says, in him, all things hold together. So uh, consider that for a moment with me. The whole of the created world is held together in him in Jesus Christ. And and so often, uh, if you're anything like me, we're walking around our world, uh, and especially in our kind of Western imagination, which has kind of given us sometimes this this watchmaker view of who God is, uh, one who's kind of set the whole cosmos into being, and then somehow sits back at a cold distance and lets it run its course. But when our eyes are open to the God who Jesus reveals... Uh, Part of what that means, part of what we're meant to see, is that all around us is a miracle. Uh, We are in a world uh, that values the spontaneous and the instantaneous, uh, we sometimes call it the, the microwave generation, as it were. But the biblical picture is that every time you take a breath, that is a gift from God. We are walking around in a world that is held together by the very grace of God. Our world is uh, what we might call a mundane miracle. So let me ask you a question here again. Uh, are you missing mundane miracles or signs in your life? Uh, the inbreaking moments of goodness and truth and beauty that are given to us by God. Maybe they're just a little slow for us to see them as miracles, but miracles I believe we're meant to see they are. And indeed, in the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples, uh, when Jesus sends them out, they're amazed that spirits submit to them. And and Jesus kind of rebukes them. And he also rebukes many other religious people constantly looking for a sign and says, uh, rejoice instead, your names are written uh, in heaven. Rejoice that you are important to God. So we have to be a little cautious that in seeking signs, we don't miss the one that the signs point to. So here in, in South Africa, in Masapumaleli, uh, I can find uh, to go find today witch doctors uh, who can amaze people with their seeming power and ability. And we see this in the Bible too. We see uh, Pharaoh has magicians and signs are performed by a kind of rival prophets in Jesus' own time. Uh, but the question is, does the sign reveal the one who holds all things together in love, goodness and truth? Or is the sign that the miracle, the magic trick as it were, simply a participation in what the Bible calls uh, the elemental forces in the world who themselves are in rebellion to the life of God which is redeeming our world to be a place of goodness, truth and beauty again. But that's not the mistake that that John, the writer of the gospel, is making here and giving us these signs. Uh, He knows who and what these signs that he is presenting point to. So, so now let's begin to turn our attention back to Jesus' actions that become a sign uh, pointing to who Jesus really is and why we might have much to celebrate over. So, looking back at the passage uh, in, Jesus, uh, in John, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13, it says When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So first of all, we we want to pay attention to the time Jesus picks for this act of prophetic anger. Uh, It's it's the Passover, and Passover for the Jews was to remember when they were delivered from Egypt. It's basically for the Jews a, a freedom from slavery festival. And so part of what Jesus is doing here is turning up at the right time. When people's memories are turned to God's deliverance from their enemies, But also when people are feeling a pang for freedom, because remember, at this time, uh, the Romans are occupying Jerusalem in a way that is reminding them painfully that the place of God's promise is still not fully fulfilled. In fact, uh, not only the Romans uh, have the Jewish people in slavery, but actually the whole temple system has become a place here. And not uh, importantly, of access to the God who wants to deliver them from slavery, but it is itself becoming a system of slavery for the financial benefit of those in power. So I wonder today where you spend your week, uh, are there places and people in your life where people are longing for freedom from what feels like slavery? So how could you be a, a prophetic voice pointing the people around you to the one who really sets people free? Okay, looking now at verse 14, uh, in the temple courts, uh, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and other, uh, others sitting at table exchanging money. And uh, historians tell us that when uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, this was in fact quite a recent adjustment to the temple. Uh, Chief priest Ananias, who uh, we meet later in the book of Acts, has made this new arrangement to bring the money changers from the bottom of the hill of the temple into the Gentile court of the temple itself. And it's hard for us to imagine the temple uh, in our own day, but it was uh, the social, political and religious center of their day. It was a a huge building that dominated the Jerusalem skyline. And uh, importantly, it was a concrete sign of a fulfillment of God's promise that his presence would be with them and that they would be able to worship him uh, free of oppression from their enemies. So uh, what's happening here in this kind of money-changing situation? So uh, in that time, those who visited from far away, instead of uh, bringing their own sheep from where they stayed, uh, they could bring money and exchange that for a sheep in Jerusalem uh, to offer their thanks to God. And and of course, they offer it at an elevated price, and and, and not much has really changed. For those of you who can kind of cast your memory back to the times when you could travel internationally... Uh, Anytime you change money away from home or overseas, uh, you're always the loser in that arrangement. And this is true uh, here as well in this temple court system. Uh, And in particular, John, uh, and the same story that we find in Matthew, uh, particular attention is given to the people who sell doves. And so this morning, uh, unless you have uh, Leviticus memorized, uh, which not many of us have, Doves in this system are what the poor could buy if they could not afford a lamb. And so it's a way for them to bring their offering of thanks to God. And so this is the way that the outcast, uh, the broken, the downtrodden poor could come close to God's presence. And so uh, this helps us come back to our original question maybe. Uh, What makes Jesus angry? And I think we're beginning to see it here. But uh, for for that, we need to understand the significance of temple. So we've looked at signs and here we're coming to pay our attention uh, to the temple. So the temple is a place uh, here in uh, in this period called Second Temple Judaism. Uh, It's a place where God's dwelling is. His rule and his reign are seen. They're a sign on the earth. Uh, But those that built the temple and those that worked in it didn't believe that it contained, you know, the whole God of the universe. It was meant to be a symbol. It was meant to be a sign. Uh, Even Solomon, who built this temple, uh, didn't believe it could contain the God of the universe. The temple was simply a place where God's realm, heaven, and our realm, earth, overlapped. And when we go back to Genesis to see the purposes of God in creation, uh, biblical scholars show us that the Genesis story is actually mapped on to what original readers would have understood to be a a setting up of uh, of a temple. The whole of creation in this way of understanding Genesis is the place where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. But of course, something in that Genesis story went terribly wrong. And the tabernacle and later the temple emerges from that. Uh, And the temple in Jerusalem itself is actually modeled after this Garden of Eden. Uh, If you could go inside the temple, uh, you would see it's filled with pictures of trees, flowers, uh, gold and animals. It's pointing to the intention of God to once again dwell with humans like he was able to do in the garden. And then if we fast forward all the way to the end of the story in Revelation, we, we see uh, again in this picture of God setting all things right. In Revelation 21, it says, uh, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so the whole of the story of God is centered around God's desire to be with his people, to tabernacle with them. And so this is the passion in the heart of God that makes Jesus angry. This is what has been lost. This is what Jesus grieves over. Access for all people to the presence of God. And so his sign against the temple is because the temple has forgotten its purpose to be a sign, to be a place where people could be in the presence of God again. Okay, so that's kind of a whistle-stop tour of a biblical theology of the temple. But what's the point for us today? Well, if the entire Bible is telling us a story about how God is wanting his presence to be with us, uh, then what is getting in the way of that presence today? Well, to understand that, we have to quickly look at an ancient problem to see for a moment that is actually a modern problem, uh, just in a different key for us today. And that problem is a, a problem inherent to the human life, and that is the problem of idolatry. So idols are are so tempting to us because they very often in themselves are are not evil things like sin and murder and stealing. Uh, Idolatry is more subtle than that because it takes the good things of God and replaces them for God himself. It's a, a good thing made into an ultimate thing. Now, obviously, in ancient times, this was taking our desire for worship and taking something like wood or stone and worshipping that. But uh, most of us aren't in a culture that carves statues uh, today. Uh, but we do live in a world that is con- uh, continually competing for our affections. Uh, things that we give our love and our ultimate allegiance to something that can very often be a very good thing. Our work, careers, uh, cars, or even something as good as our families. Uh, But the the Bible shows us that when these good things become disordered and they take the place of God, they become idols. And so while idols are kind of this subtle misordering of good things, uh, what Jesus gets angry at here is in some ways the subtlest of idols, uh, religious ones. Uh, The temple itself here, the place that all nations were meant to see the sign of God's goodness, his nearness, his faithfulness, uh, that sign has actually become an idol. And it was, like I mentioned in the beginning, meant to point to his goodness. It was meant to point to his nearness and his faithfulness for all people. That, To put it clearly, there was a way back into the presence of God, the same presence we were meant to live with back in the garden. So for those of us that have been Christians longer than a few weeks, uh, these religious idols are are a major way we too can become deceived. Uh, Instead of the difficult and intimidating task of growing in relationship with God himself, uh, we can fill our lives with the things of God and figure that will do, that God will sometimes just be happy with us if if we do that. And so the question Jesus' rebuke of the temple offers us today is, are you keeping the main thing? The main thing. Are you living with God or just for God? And I can't tell you uh, how many thing, uh, how many times I've had to receive uh, the rebuke of God to return to the heart of this story as we seek to live here and seek God's purposes uh, in, in the township of Masapumaleli. Are we doing that with God and not just for him? And so uh, we can think, have we uh, taken the good gifts of God, uh, church membership, our attendance, our engagement with the people of God, uh, as gifts of God? uh, Do we want the things of God or do we want God himself? That's the question uh, that we're being asked here. Uh, We can use so easily uh, religious busyness and religious business in some ways to distract us from the painful and costly claims that relationship with Jesus makes on us. And so uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, in his uh, translation or paraphrase of Matthew 11, I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, says it in such a beautiful way. He says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and uh, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And uh, this is the invitation of the Christian life. to walk with, to work with the presence of God and not just for Him. And so don't misunderstand me here. Uh, Christianity is a team sport. We need community. We need the church. It's good to contribute to our common life together in service. Uh, But what is empowering you as you do that? Is it the very life of God within you Uh, or a sense of dry duty and obligation? And so here's the punchline of, of John's telling of the temple cleansing. Shortly after the verses we've read, the religious elite asked Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus says, uh, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And of course, Jesus uh, scandalizes them by basically saying what he says more explicitly in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. And here, uh, John, kind of with a wink, helps us with some commentary. And he says, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed that the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Here we receive uh, the reality to which all the signs are pointing to, Jesus in his resurrection. And this morning, uh, Jesus is offering us, offering you life, his life, life in abundance, life that has conquered death. And now uh, as a Pentecost people, we have that life living on the inside of us and among us as we gather. This is the key to our life together, that we do all that we are doing, not for God, but with God. We are not just doing it uh, with God so we can be this special little club. Uh, This is Jesus' desire, uh, what provokes his anger, that all nations, people who feel far off from God, uh, people who feel unqualified and forgotten, that they would have access to God's life-giving presence, his forgiveness, his friendship. And this is what all the signs of John's gospel point to, that in the opening words of this gospel by John, that the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is temple language. Uh, God has come close. He has, uh, Peterson says in the message, has moved into the neighborhood. And so now we have a high calling. Uh, That with God's life inside of us, we now are God's presence in our neighbourhoods. Our life together and our life in the world is meant to be a sign to the world that God is nearer than they could have ever dreamt of. When we live this life with God, not just for him, we welcome the poor, the broken. We live as the church is a sign and wonder uh, that points to a good king and saviour in the midst of a world who so desperately needs one. So final question for you as you enter this week. uh, Are you living for God or with him? Can you live this week full of the presence of Jesus, the one who never leaves or forsakes you, as the sign to the world that God has come nearer to them than they could have hoped or dreamed? Bless you.